0: Welcome to episode 28 of the Corbett Real Estate Insider Podcast. We were just talking and catching up before we hit record here. Brian is coming to us with breaking news. He was hyping this up as if it's the most crazy thing anyone's heard. It's pretty cool. I don't know the craziest thing I've ever heard uh, in 2024, but Brian, let's uh, let's hear this bombshell news story uh, coming to you from Brian Connolly. <laughs>
1: That's I'm sorry to disappoint. It's not that exciting, but it is exciting in real estate circles. So the Boston Globe um, dropped a bombshell last week titled, A Looming Threat to Greater Boston's Biotech Dominance, 700 Miles Away. And the purpose of the story is to compare Boston's cost of doing transactions and running a business in, in the biotech sector to Raleigh-Durham. So um It's interesting and the timing was great because my team here is doing a lot of work in this area at the moment. And it's just interesting to compare the, the cost of the real estate. First and foremost, you could save somewhere between 25 and 40%, um, annually on, on the cost of the real estate. You could save somewhere between 20 and 30% on the cost of capex. You could save 25 to 30% on the cost of labor, never mind incentives, never mind Massachusetts being the 49th out of 50th state um, in ranking in terms of the tax structure for businesses. North Carolina being, I think, five today, going to top two when their um, state income tax or state sales tax goes to zero in the next few years. The Massachusetts has the one of the highest costs of electricity, the highest cost for natural gas, and overall operating expenses are very challenged here in New England. North Carolina, significantly less, somewhere in the tune of ten to thirty percent, depending upon where you go. So it's um It's a big deal for the community here. The interesting part of it is a lot of the developers that are are, uh, controlling the market up here from a GMP perspective, one uh, that's referenced in the article by the name of King Street Properties, also has the major development or one of the two major built-to-suit developments um, that are in the Raleigh-Durham North Carolina market. And what's really interesting from a client's perspective that are in this space, there is a couple billion dollars in uh, facilities that have been built on spec during the, the during the life science boom. Two of two of them competing properties sitting right across from each other that have delivered uh, two buildings each on spec that are sitting vacant today. And rents, you know, rents are going to be in the kind of mid to low 40s tenant improvement packages of two to $300 a foot, and compare that to Boston that has no campus environments that are feasible today. ARE has one that's, that's too far off and too expensive to really explore. Um, so if you're a company in Boston, you could go down, save significant money, real significant money, material amounts of money, be in a campus environment, uh, lower cost of living for your people. And it's really compelling. And a lot of the companies that we're talking to up here, uh, I will tell you, are really exploring this. I think for the first time uh, in my career, as they, you know, as they look to find ways to reduce costs and and um, and save money.
2: Brian, you're quite the booster for your hometown region. There, man, Chamber of Commerce, Kill Boston.
0: I think it's interesting when when you start thinking about where in the country is the most cost-effective, efficient spot to manufacture whether it be you know manufacturing pharmaceuticals or manufacturing widgets or you know building new factory or semiconductor chips whatever it might be um i think it's easy for people to follow the you know cost of labor cost of electricity and do all of these things and we obviously know that raleigh durham is already a very established hub it's a great spot to live Uh, it's very believable to me that at least a percentage of people that live in Boston would be willing to relocate to Raleigh-Durham for the right uh, professional opportunity. Um, something that I'm seeing happen uh, th- that always is perplexing to me is you'll 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 keep following this like path to efficiency and end up in a market that nobody wants to live because maybe electricity cost uh, is lower than anywhere else, and that doesn't do anyone anyone uh, any good, right? It's really a, a question of. Uh, In this particular case, Raleigh-Durham already has a very high quantity of the type of jobs that these life science companies need. Uh, It's a very high quality spot to live. And then there's all of these other factors that are in line too. So I just want to clarify that for some of these other companies, uh, Raleigh-Durham is still an extremely expensive spot to operate, right? But compared to Boston and on a relative basis to the concentration of life science talent that it has. It's very favorable. So uh, it's just important to keep those things in mind.
1: Yeah, very astute, Tucker. I know With um, you know, as we're tracking these, these emerging manufacturing hubs, now uh, listeners should realize we're not talking about the R&D. The real core talent that makes Boston Boston is, is not going to be working in a factory, actually manufacturing the drugs. They're on the R&D side. They're on the knowledge base side. They're working in Cambridge or in one of the markets that have kind of spilled out of Cambridge. But for the other side of it is on the manufacturing side. That's where Raleigh-Durham has really made a place for itself two ways. One is they're growing talent through the universities. But more importantly, they've realized that the talent for for manufacturing is going to come from a different place than the, the Dukes or the NC States or the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. And they've really built their community college network. So these are really high-paying jobs for the region that are being supported by these cutting-edge drug companies that are opening these these um, factories that could be a thousand dollars a square foot to build just the just the interiors of of them to be able to produce the product. So it's pretty it's pretty important um, to the local economy. But Tucker, to your point, there's Houston's trying to get in the game. Uh, Indianapolis is trying to get in the game. Florida is trying to get in the game. These are all these markets that don't have this established hub. And there's another uh, three or four right behind it that just don't have the ecosystem yet. They don't have the feeder system in the uh, community with the colleges or the local colleges, uh, community colleges. So they're, they're trying to get there, but they see this as a real opportunity. North Carolina, Boston have established themselves in this space That's it's really hard to compete with. Uh, but it's just so interesting that it broke last week and, and the reporter's been working on the story for two months and there's just enough momentum and it's just too expensive of a state to manufacture. New England is cost prohibitive in the manufacturing space. So I've done work in, in now in, in biotech manufacturing, in, in semiconductor manufacturing, in, um, in high-tech manufacturing, all these companies having to really look either north of the border, the easy answer to New Hampshire. Um, for, for this sector, it's North Carolina, but others are just going anywhere they can to get out of Massachusetts, which is, um, I guess, we're a a product of our own success where our costs are just too high on the labor and real estate side.
3: I think you got to be careful, though. I mean, it's I, I'm, a, I'm in Tucker's camp on this one, guys, because uh, there's always speculation that Um, People are chasing efficiencies. And to Tucker's point, sometimes it just comes down to, well, is it a good place to recruit and retain my people, though? Because people, keep in mind, are your biggest expense, um, by and large, for any company in in the nation. Real estate, usually, not always, but usually a close second. And here in the Northwest, um, during the pandemic and when there was just this absolute uh, insatiable desire for lab space, much like we saw in the industrial, which we've talked about in the pod, uh, Alexandria um, bought about 1.3 million square feet of real estate in an area of the northwest here called Bothell. It's just north of Seattle. By you know, with traffic, we're talking 45 minutes. And it was the, their play was, hey, we can control the market given the amount of space we, we will own. Um, and Seattle was getting so expensive for lab space. It was kind of the release valve because uh, lab space in Bothell was trading for about a third. As to what you were paying in Seattle. Well, you know, um, we've all seen and we've talked about on this pod what's happened with the life science market. Um, recently, late January, so last week, uh, Alexandria took a $29.7 million impairment on one of these buildings they bought. Um, for those that you don't understand what an impairment is, is when something basically, you know, it could be buying a company or a piece of real estate um, where it basically drops in value to the point where it's nearly worthless and it helps. Uh, investors uh, have better clarity on on the health of the company they might be investing in. So anyway, long story short, um, this is a case where, you know, Alexandria took a play um, that, hey, if we can control this much product, we can help drive demand uh, that can't afford South Lake Union in Seattle to Bothell. And there might have been some other investment thesis along with it. Um, I I wasn't the one making those decisions to buy all that real estate, but nevertheless, it hasn't played out. Um, By and large, I mean, yes, the market has kind of gotten soft and venture capital phoning the life science is not what it was during the pandemic. But, you know, people want to be, you know, in Seattle, historically, I mean, I've talked to dozens and dozens of life science companies in Seattle who complain about how much it costs, but refuse to explore lesser cost alternatives just simply because of their people. So um, w- whether that Boston Raleigh Durham thing will work itself out, Brian, I don't know, but I'm I'm kind of in Tucker's camp that people will pay up to be where they can recruit and retain.
1: Yeah. I, I I don't disagree with you. I think the difference here is, is, and by the way, that's for a lot of the, the GMP manufacturing um, buildings that have been bought either, either second generation buildings for conversion, you know, an, an hour outside of Boston or ones that are being built on spec closer to the city. What, um, what the marketplace is expecting and it's, and it's, i'll give you an example we were just in a conversation with a large uh, biotech company and they built um, their headquarters and they built manufacturing nearby because they wanted their crossover of talent they wanted the ability for their engineers and their scientists to be able to influence and, and interact with the folks at the manufacturing facility the feedback they got now that they've come online for a while, um, it's it's about 95 to 99 percent zero interaction between the two different parts of the business. So they effectively could have moved that anywhere in the country, and it would have stood on its own, and there would have been zero um, impact to the success of that of that business. So I think companies are getting smarter about this because your point is exactly right on. Uh, on the high talent stuff, but then if you're trying to produce a drug and you've got the government coming down on you trying to make you produce the drug for cheaper, why are you trying to produce the drug in the same market that you invented the drug, right? So let's let's look at this manufacturing uh, the same we look at all manufacturing chase lower cost to a point, right? We don't want to put it all overseas and have there be some sort of a um, risk to the to the supply chain. But let's chase at least 700 miles. You, there's a lot of direct flights to Raleigh. There's a lot of direct flights to even Houston, who's really trying to make a play in this space. And, um, you know, the carnage in New England on the lab space, the true lab space, is is real challenging. The, uh, you know, the landlord IQ HQ, who has some over, John, they have over a million square feet, I think, in downtown San Diego that they've, you know, they've gone spec on here in New England They've got a building in Brown Fenway Park, right? So anyone knows it. It's on Brookline Ave. Um, 300,000 feet delivered vacant. They're trying to do rents, you know, $110, $115 a foot. With a TI allowance, that's about $100 less than what ARE just announced in their earnings call. Market TI is, which is, which is about $300 a foot. Uh, IQHQ, because of whatever reason, they're at you know, 200 to 250, I'm, I'm told. So they're, you know, they're 50 to $100 less than market because of, because of their capital situation, I'm sure. Um, you've got them with another building on the west side of Cambridge where no one wants to be delivering two buildings of a five building campus that'll eventually be 700,000 feet vacant, that with no tenants in sight, and they're asking for similar rents with similar TIs. So Uh, None of that is, you know, is a good position to be in right now.
0: So there's a lot of things that uh, all of you have said that I I find uh, pretty nuanced. So the idea between contract manufacturing and R&D is so important to understand, right? You uh, generally, when you're, you know, developing a product, whether you be a more uh, traditional manufacturer, you're a, you know, GMP manufacturer, whatever you might be doing, The people that are building the first you know version one version zero of the product right those people are a very different type of profile of somebody that uh you know is doing contract manufacturing for or final assembly of something that has already been produced a thousand or ten thousand times and i think that's brian when you were talking about you know this shift from boston to raleigh durham and talking about the article i think i didn't i didn't totally understand what you meant by that initially And now what I understand it to mean is that um, it's not as if Raleigh-Durham is uh, threatening Boston as the epicenter of life science R&D and sort of cutting edge, uh, you know, research. But what it is is becoming the, you know, manufacturing suburb of Boston where costs are way lower and it's a different type of talent pool. And that's still a great position for Raleigh-Durham to be in. And naturally, as there's more GMP and all that in Raleigh-Durham, of course, there's going to be more cutting-edge research that also happens in Raleigh-Durham. Uh, but the main point being that that's where GMP is going.
1: I just want to comment that I love the way that you described Raleigh-Durham as a suburb of Boston because... It's just a great analogy, and I and I want uh, I wanted to acknowledge that.
0: Whenever you use it in real life, just be like, shout out Tucker Hughes, coin, coin the term. The other thing that I wanted to comment on at just a high level is how important it is to understand what the talent looks like in a given market, and also how easy it is to access this data. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics publishes these things called standard occupational classifications, uh, and, it, and the short version is just... SOC acronym codes. And there's over 800 SOC codes in the US. And it's basically every type of occupation you can imagine. So it'd be everyone from like an actor, an actress, and you can imagine that concentration of that is the highest in Los Angeles, then New York, it's everyone from uh, aerospace engineers to advertising, you know, agencies, every type of occupation you could have is sorted into, I believe it's 864 codes that exist, but it's over 800. They're really big number, and to pull, uh, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics data is is not very challenging. I mean, we we're doing it all of the time, and being able to figure out where is actually the best spot for a specific type of role is so important. And if you look at the data for, um, you know, the SOC codes that are relevant to GMP manufacturing, and you look at them in Raleigh Durham, for example, what you're going to see is that there's already a very high concentration. There's a lot of this type of talent that already exists in Raleigh-Durham. But more notably, you're going to see very positive uh, growth characteristics. And that's because of the work that Raleigh-Durham has done uh, building up the community colleges and the type of people that are going to be entering this field. And that's, that's really key. I mean, if you're a company figuring out, hey, where do I locate this specific type of manufacturing project? First thing you're going to do is figure out what SOC codes are you trying to hire for? then you're going to look at a market that has at least some minimum baseline number of jobs of those specific SOC codes. And then you're going to look at the high level. What direction is this trending, right? Is there more and more talent or am I going to locate here and then three competitors do right after? And we've completely saturated the market because people are leaving. So those, those are the main things that people are going to initially look at. And then once they have that, they overlay, you know, cost of labor, cost of real estate, cost of utilities, economic incentives. And that's ultimately how they make this kind of decision. And Raleigh-Durham, uh, a- along with a couple other cities that are trying to compete, is emerging as, after doing all of that analysis, as the spot to be that blends all of those factors. So it'll be interesting to see other cities emerge uh, to compete with Raleigh-Durham, which will inevitably happen given all of the you know, economic impact that this has.
1: Totally. I, I couldn't, that's exactly right. And I'm just impressed with the way that they've um, at different levels have been able to create the growth in the labor force. Right. So not only are they focusing on the universities, but also these community colleges and and being able to replenish the labor force and grow it. um, It's apparent. It's you know, it's 30 to 40 percent. Just look I have some numbers in front of me. Uh, It's. Somewhere between 3 and 5x the size on the manufacturing side, 3 to 5x the size of the labor pool here in uh, greater Boston. On top of availability, you know, sustainability rather that
3: Tucker talks about. Sustainability being, you know, if you go move, you know, and hire 500 people and three competitors come in thereafter, you know, is it saturate the market and then there's no people to kind of replace any attrition you might have. Also, you know, a big factor that we've noticed is like occupation breakdown by age. Um, how, what population of that workforce is say, you know, 25 to 54 or 55, um, and how much of it is 55 and older, not to say that people aren't going to work till they're 70 or older, maybe. Um, but I think as you start to get up in age for that labor market, um, a, you probably have a different talent set and B, um, how sustainable is that long-term? Um, if there's not people coming in behind it, so we could get we could do a whole pod on labor. I know we've all done a lot of analysis for our clients and, and stuff. It's fascinating, and you know, given the fact that it outranks real estate on many multiples, um, suggests that you should be even more cognizant of your labor costs than than you are your real estate. Okay, so you know, in the last pod, you know, we've talked about office space, and you know, you've all heard. I'm not going to go anywhere near touching work from home because I think that's been played out by by so many. Um, But I want to talk about Class A premium real estate. And, you know, on the 60 Minutes episode that we highlighted on a recent pod, there was some uh, reference to, you know, SL Green's project in New York being 95% leased. Um, There's markets across the country who have uh, Class A plus premium real estate that's just doing phenomenally well. Um, In some cases in New York, people have achieved $300 rents, record rents Uh, here in the Northwest. We had transactions um, occurring over in Bellevue at near or at record rents. So that is indeed happening. But my question is, and this was brought up in an article in the Wall Street Journal last week, is there a reckoning coming for these Class A premium towers? Um, You know, as the rate of leasing slows, are they going to be subject to um, the effects that every other office building has already has, has already seen? And I read the article, and for those that want to read it, you know, I, it's a good article. It's, it's called The Real Estate Downturn Comes for America's Premier Office Towers. And it was from the January 30th issue of the, of the journal. Um, but I think what the uh, reporter failed to recognize is that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. And what I, say, what I mean by that is that, yes, there are buildings that are doing phenomenally well in this a- asset class. And I would suggest, like, in everyone's market, you know, you see less than... Five percent of the overall office supply being premium assets, um, but I will also say, without naming names here in Seattle, there's there's a premium asset here in downtown Seattle that's doing horribly. Um, despite pumping in tens and tens of millions of dollars uh, in renovations over the over the pandemic, they have not been able to successfully lease space. Um, and so this whole notion that this premium asset class is going to drive demand because tenants are affording you know a Cadillac for the price of a Kia. Um, it's just nonsense in some cases, um, and some are suggesting or questioning rather. If your people aren't coming in, um, do there are companies asking themselves, well, do we just renew? Because of the in the fourth quarter last year, forty percent of office transactions were renewals, um, so nearly half. And so I think it's just a question of like, um, a you know, how important do you as a company think your real estate is for attracting and retaining talent? There's a huge um, divergence of opinions on that matter. Um, And then B, is there a reckoning or lack thereof coming for premium office towers in in each person's respective markets? And so I'd love to hear from my teammates on this pod, you know, what's going on in their markets. Because as you listeners know, we all work in different markets across the country. And I'll kind of wrap this up by saying in in Bellevue, which is uh, here in the Seattle area, um, those premium assets are actually doing remarkably well. As recently as uh, two weeks ago, uh, one of the the new construction buildings announced a 375,000 square foot lease for Pokemon um, at near or all-time record rents. But uh, then, on this side of the lake in Seattle, which is where I work, um, you have the opposite happening. Where, um, given other demand, other reasons rather, um, premium assets in Seattle aren't doing so well. So that article in the journal would be contradictory to what's actually happening. So. Anyway, just food for thought, but would love to hear from my panelists as, um, as to what's going on in Boston, San Diego, and L.A. as it relates to their premium asset class. Again, that tier of market that's probably less than 5% of the supply.
1: I mean, I'll jump in on Boston. I read the article, and I think the um, the journal was looking for a catchy headline to get clicks because the article didn't really support the headline, in my opinion. Our, our premium assets not meeting their lofty underwriting or stretch goals? Yes. Are they still getting a premium in the market? Of course. Uh, and it comes back to the pure fundamentals. People want to be in buildings that have good natural light. They want to be in buildings that have good building systems. They have they want to be in buildings that are more efficient so they could take less space. Now you layer in the fact they can take even less space because they're not coming into the office five days a week, or they're maybe changing their uh, their design to meet the the changing needs of their workforce, and then it's like a a an added benefit in in allowing more companies, I think, access to these premium buildings. I think the the uh, the headline around them not performing, yes, but I think the the expectation in a lot of these landlords of getting these massive numbers in rent growth, we're, we're going to come back down anyway, right? there's a cyclical nature of, of any market. I think a lot of those were were unrealistic in general. Um, I'll tell you one example. So Boston Properties, the largest uh, office landlord in the country and in Boston. Um, I just heard a story that they've got a tenant in one of their premier buildings that's about 80,000, 100,000 feet. Uh, the tenant wants to do an early renewal and they want to give back some space five years early, four years early. BP said, Well, bring us a tenant for the space you're giving back, which is you know, no more than 10 or 20% of, of their overall lease. Um, if you bring us a tenant for the space you want to give back, we'll renew you early. Uh, but until if you don't, then talk to us in a few years. So to me, that's a very bullish position to be in that's a landlord that is confident that their high quality assets are going to continue to lease and they're willing to be patient in in ride out this market downturn which I thought in itself uh, was was telling and I think I think if I was in their position and and in a healthy financial position I'd do the same thing right so in this market we there's there's just such a discrepancy between some of the uh, commodity product and some of the nicest newest product that a firm like Boston property has, or I think I talked in the last podcast of a new building that millennium um, partners delivered or Heinz is delivering a new building at cell station. These super premium buildings are, are going to lease. They're going to have, um, you know, much higher rents than the overall market. And I think that that article was a bit misleading because, um, uh, mm-hmm. i I don't think i don't think it's uh it's happening here
0: there's this phenomenon called the gelman uh, amnesia effect which is basically if you're an expert in something and you read an article on the subject matter that you're an expert in and you realize just how utterly wrong it is like in the case of this article very misleading headline that doesn't really match what's actually happening it's the idea that you can go from something you're not an expert in then read the next article that you don't know anything about and assume that everything is accurate and it's really funny because I'm sure everyone finds themselves doing that at some point. So, uh, as four experts, let us just tell you that basically everything you're going to read in the Wall Street Journal or New York Times or wherever is going to be wrong. It's just a matter of like how how nuanced is it and how wrong is it. It's almost never the full story. Um, and it's, this is a really challenging space because it's so opaque. Uh, if you're the end user of real estate, that you you don't even really know what's going on, and then you know, 90% of the people that work in commercial real estate are employed by companies that get 80, 90% of their revenue from representing institutional landlords and also have a fair degree of bias in their own reporting. So it's, uh, it's, it's really challenging, but getting back to, you know, Owen's question of what's actually happening with premium assets. Um, and I, I agree with Brian. I mean, I, the, the added nuance that I would, I would say is that, Um, It really depends how you're classifying what premium assets are. I think that a lot of people think of premium assets more as construction type and less location driven. And you can have an ultra premium asset in the wrong location in the wrong neighborhood. And it's really not an ultra premium asset as far as the market's concerned. And I think, you know, in Los Angeles specifically, how do you define premium asset? I think it has to be a high quality construction and in the right location. uh, Most importantly. And that the ultra premium assets in Los Angeles might even be lower quality real estate in the best possible areas, and that that's important. But the general theme of you know companies taking less space and taking higher quality space that is more of an asset to their company than you know just some dreaded spot that people are forced to go a few days a week is definitely the trend. And uh, we can talk about this in you know when we wrap up on this subject, but. We're seeing that happen at, you know, a large scale with, you know, sort of the thing, large technology companies too.
2: Okay. I will go last. Um, And I agree. We've talked about it here on the pod previously, and I called it the, I think I called it the uh, premium rent spread, uh, by which I mean that the rents for the nicest buildings are tethered to the rents for the class B and class C and everything else. They're tethered, they're attached, and there's a limit to how far removed the 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 premium quality um pricing can be uh this i contend this i also want to suggest i'm glad you brought up location tucker i think that's really being missed people think of class a as just nice buildings uh location is a key criteria now and in particular as it relates to um access and proximity to metro you know we've talked about penn station in new york if you go to the bay area you've got caltrain okay do i do i take caltrain to my building or do I take Caltrain and then have to wait for the shuttle bus that's going to take me another 45 minutes to actually get to my office place? So is the building that sits there at the Caltrain station worth a premium? Yes, it is. How much is that premium? Well, well, that's what is subject to negotiation. And what I will contend is that it's not inelastic, it's elastic. Uh, people have a choice because it's not just the very best and the very worst. There's product everywhere in between. So there's a great building that's right at the Caltrain station and they're demanding a premium rent, but guess what? There's a really nice building across the street or maybe another one that's like a block away. So yeah, you got to walk, but it's a short walk. So all these interim solutions are going to compete on price and forcing um, elastic demand. People are going to have choices and there's a limit to the premium spread that'll be applied to the very nice, very best located buildings.
1: I think companies too are making better decisions, right? So, and this is um, hopefully uh, a result of them working with better brokers and better advisors and more sophisticated internal real estate people. But I feel like over the last five years, companies are really digging into, that's five years, since the pandemic, uh, really digging into real estate differently. I mean, there's a great example here in Boston, right? So you've got Wayfair, who at their peak were in 1.4 million square feet. They were doing... uh, Call center operations out of downtown Boston in some of the more premium buildings, right? So this is um, just unheard of and very difficult decision uh, to understand from you know from a third party, and you know they're they're challenged financially now, uh, shocker. But um, they they had four to five hundred thousand feet of space that they never even built out or moved into. I think they built some of it, but not all of it. So they just were banking space. In order to continue to stay ahead of their growth in one of the most desirable cities on the planet in the city of Boston so I you know clearly they've they've changed courses they've um, they've gone through a number of restructurings and layoffs and and a lot of that space sits on the sublease market today almost almost all of it so um, I think that's just a very uh, large example of how companies are thinking about their real estate differently and have Um, really brought on more sophisticated people talking about labor, talking about transportation, location, moving their people closer to or moving their offices closer to their people, which I talked about, you know, six months ago is something I saw coming into the future. And um, I think the business has just grown up a lot over the last couple of years, which is really great because it's, um, I think, at a firm like ours and a team like ours, it's
2: allowing us to to shine and really add value hey i can segue on your comment about from six months ago about moving your offices out to where your people are i was going to do a little uh venturing into social media and um it's a risky gambit right to comment and share and have an opinion and but i think linkedin is one of the safer places to do it i think uh twitter can be a little bit hostile or x can be a little bit hostile um so i took a i took a shot uh and it's on that topic that you just brought up brian so this is uh Stephen Wearley, he's Global Corporate Real Estate and Workplace Leader at at Olympus. And uh, we're connected and he posted uh, the following. When you think about workplace experience, where is your employee's commute in your strategic plan? Odds are that your employees dislike their commute more than they dislike their experience of working in your facility. But how do we resolve this issue? Let me know your thoughts. Okay, here's my take. What do you think? And we'll see how this plays out. If people like it, people comment, people blow me up on it. Uh, great question, Steven. And the answer needs to be front and center, I believe, the commute. The old model of spending two hours driving each each day in order to be on my computer there rather than here was was and is broken. Solving for why we go into the office is a great start. And for many, this will mean more and smaller distributed office hubs where teams can gather rather than one massive downtown office location that we all have to commute to. Time will tell what impact this may have on our biggest urban markets. Thoughts on this? So, yeah, I took a shot on social media. Let's see how people respond. But what do you three think? How do you respond? So, uh, kind of a response,
1: but also a interesting story I heard the, this weekend. So, and this is just kind of, it solidifies it for me. I'm old and, and not hip and cool with the young crowd. But um, people are are working in a hybrid office environment. And what they do on the days that they have to report, they're managing their day around not having issues with their commute. So the four of us would think. Now we break this down. So the four of us would think, like, okay, if I if uh, this company's a three day a week crowd, Monday they wake up, they stay at their house, they work all day. Tuesday, they wake up early, they get in their car, they get on the train, they go to work, they work a full day in the office, they they leave at the end of the day. Same, you know, same whenever they need to do that. No. What people are doing now is saying, okay, if I have to be there on Tuesday, I'm going to get up and work from home. I'm going to go in at 10 or 11 because that's where the least amount of traffic is. I will badge in. So I'm registered at my office for the day. I'll stay there an hour or two, three hours, get lunch, maybe just work out. Who knows? See the people, do my rounds, and I'll be out the door between two and four, miss the traffic again. So People are managing, so now how efficient is that day? Or those three days, they're not, they're not being efficient to get their work done. They're f- being efficient to make their lives less challenging in terms of their commute. So it just defeats the whole purpose of having a hybrid schedule because now these people are being super inefficient. They're using their daytime when they should be working to commute rather than off hours. And it just blows the whole model up. And what does that really mean, John, to your question? It means that the commute is the most important part of all of this, and being able to figure out a structure that allows people or forces people to be more efficient so their commutes aren't the major burden in their day is the whole answer that everyone is looking for. Because you can't get there, you're gonna, um, you're gonna have people that are either upset or they're gonna be very inefficient going to the office.
0: Okay, Brian, remind us what you told us about maybe six months ago predicting that this would be a bigger thing?
1: Well, I, I, listen, I don't exactly remember the words, but I know that you challenged me and you thought I was crazy. That's all I know. And I proved to be right. So just make sure we put that, don't cut that out of the pod. Tell us your thesis and how it's coming true. Yeah. So what, what they're doing is they're, they're moving companies will start to move their offices closer to where their people live to, to eliminate commutes. Right. So there's these, these neighborhoods, you think Hudson Yards, in Boston, it's the seaport. I'm sure in, in, um, in Seattle, it's, I don't know, Bellevue or something, right? So they'll start to push their offices out into the neighborhoods that people are living to provide them an opportunity to go to work by you know bike, walk, scooter, whatever they're doing and really bifurcate or break their their headquarters into multiple sites or smaller sites rather than trying to get everyone to commute to one place that you know that's disruptive to the large larger workforce. And it's
0: true, it's happening. I think it's a it's a great solution that only works for a very small percentage of companies, right? If you're, you know, Meta or Google or somebody and you have a massive amount of space in a given market and there's actually concentration of where people you know, live what neighborhoods that they live in. And you could say, Hey, we can cut commute minutes by 50 to 80% or something by having four offices instead of one. Okay. That starts making a lot of sense. But when you're dealing with smaller companies, like at, at what point do you end up having a bunch of these sort of smaller offices where there's like five people in each of them? And it's like, why are you even coming in? Like the whole point of going into the office is to be with your team And my, uh, sort of resistance against your idea six months ago was at, at what point is this really practical? Like, wouldn't it be great if, you know, our Hughes Marino office in LA with, you know, like a couple dozen people, right. Imagine if we just have like 10 offices and each of us, I mean, at some point you're like, okay, we're all like going to our own, you know, single office in a, you know, co working space. So I, I think there needs to be some balance and recognition that this really doesn't work for small companies and small and medium-sized companies make up the vast majority of most office markets. I really, I want Brian to respond to this because I'm curious what he thinks and how this can apply to smaller companies.
1: So um, first and foremost, Tucker, you're in LA and this phenomenon was happening in LA because of traffic well before everywhere else. So it's, it's a proven, it's a proven system or, or approach uh, in LA. For a lot of companies, that at least as as I've kind of dipped my toe in it with larger users, I think your answer um, is it it cannot work. Like there's a there's a critical mass that you need. It can't work for small companies because you need you need to still be getting the benefits of bringing people together. Or why are you even opening an office? I mean, that's that's the reason that a lot of companies are moved away from coworking for um, you know this enterprise model of coworking where. A big organization would have lots of small kind of drop in offices all of that has either gone to a coffee shop if they 're on the road or their home office if they 're at home so you, you know that that model's kind of falling apart and i don't think i don't think that's the target audience. I think you need what 's the number fifty thousand feet three hundred people four hundred people right to start to really make it make sense where you could break that into hubs and try to um, get a higher interaction with your employees on a more local basis rather than
0: make everybody try to commute to a central location let me dig into this a little bit further right because when you think about what a company is or what a company that has a uh you know large presence in boston or la or seattle or wherever right really what these companies are are just a collection of different teams that work on different components of the business that all have you know different roles on the team but all have the same focus or job just to help the company be more successful right and if you start taking an example of say, say you have a 50,000 foot or a hundred thousand foot office and say that, let's just say you have a hundred thousand foot office and there's 500 people and say it's a technology company. And of those 500 people, let's just say that across different teams and divisions and all that, they're relatively evenly dispersed across the, um, you know, neighborhoods where you'd expect for people to live. And then let's say that they're relatively evenly dispersed in terms of age, uh, you know, family status, things like that. You start breaking it down. And it's like, all of a sudden, it's like of the 500 people, well, maybe there's 50 people or hundred people that live in a, an area where you could cluster them and say, okay, great. We're going to have five offices and a hundred people is going to go to each of these offices is going to save everyone a bunch of commute time. Are you right back to where you're, what you were saying with small companies, where it doesn't really work? If of the hundred people, that are going to this location versus that location are all on different teams and then like you have the you know technology development team that's working on one program and say there's 20 people on this one team and the whole point of them coming into the office is be able to collaborate and work together and now you have four people from uh, each of the 20 people at each of the five different locations like what what have you really done right so how do you respond to that how do you actually implement this recognizing that There's a lot more complexity uh, beyond just where do people in the aggregate or on average live? Well, let me chime in here. So,
3: Brian, you seem to be, uh, relative to the smaller companies, less those that are massive and and can afford to have many locations, I got to say, you just sound like the mini offices are everywhere philosophy proponent, which I don't disagree with if you're a big company, but for the smaller companies like Tucker's trying to talk about or suggest it it, i don't think it works um it turns finding office space uh for the company into a giant officer scavenger hunt um and why you know you talk about getting people back together even if it's on two to three days a week it's basically to tucker's point a game of hide and seek if those days that you're trying to be together you've got five offices in a metro area and who knows which office that person's going to be in um, especially because sometimes they may be working with teams from one group, and then maybe next week they're working on a project where they need to be corresponding with teams on another group. So um, I don't really think there's a small office revolution upon us. Um, maybe some remote um, hubs could work. But the other thing, too, is that you have to think about um, how strong is your leadership in those offices because it's easy to get lost where you could. I could see. Some of these offices having those days they're asked to be in the office, whether it be one, two, three, four or five days, whatever it might be, um, reaching desired occupancy. Whereas if the leader in that office is someone who actually prefers to work from home, because I'm sure there are some leaders that actually prefer to work from home, isn't leading by example, maybe nobody goes. Um, And so it's really hard for um, unless you're a large company and you can have an office of 50,000 feet you know, as your satellite office, so to speak, less the corporate headquarters, it gets really challenging. Um, and, you know, efficiency is another discussion. Like, I it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm not, everyone has to commute. And you're never going to satisfy everybody. And uh, I think you can go out of your way to make sure that the office that you're opening is as um, is well-located as as possible, but I've got requirements every single quarter where I do maps showing where the employees live and where our desired location is. And without a doubt, every single time, there are people that are impacted negatively when considering locating the office, you know, north, south, east, or west. Um, And with those requirements, you know, with the thought of opening yet a second office, having redundancies um that you otherwise wouldn't have to duplicate if you had one location is usually just cost prohibitive um and I've, I've rarely seen it done
0: i'm really curious how how brian responds to this because i mean just as as if you've listened to our podcast for a while uh even though you know brian isn't out here like naming his clients names for confidentiality reasons all of the, the three of us know that brian represents a lot of these small medium-sized companies but also represents a lot of these companies that are enormous that have thousands or tens of thousands of employees um and and like that's true of all of us on the podcast for that matter but like it it is interesting because i know brian is thinking of how how does this actually apply to a uh like 3000 person company that has locations in many cities cuz you start thinking about like a 3000 person company or 5000 person company isn't that big when you start thinking about it this way just say that you have 5000 people and you have a footprint in 10 different you know, cities, maybe eight of them are in the US. Maybe you have like a London or European headquarters, or maybe an outpost in, you know, Hong Kong or something, right? So you start thinking about that. You might only have, you know, eight locations and maybe two or three of them have a thousand plus and the majority are going to have, you know, two to 500. So you start thinking about a footprint like that. Brian thinks this is a very good idea for some companies. I just, I really want to understand the use case because I agree that it could be great. And what you're trying to accomplish is a very, worthy uh goal and then i like john i I would love to loop you in once we have brian respond just because uh what you're talking about like what you posted on linkedin is that this isn't one of the issues like this is the issue with return to office is the commute so anyways let's hear what you guys think
1: thanks ducker so here's what i i believe the the a company that's in a market is likely going to keep a significant presence or a presence in the location that they've always been in but as you start to think about that location it's going to significantly decrease in size i'm not talking about adding four satellites but if you look at your employee base and you say okay we want to be this company in five years we want to hire these people as people retire or leave the company we think our employee base is going to come from this target market where is the highest concentration of that target market Okay, it's in this neighborhood. put a, put an office there. That's what I'm talking about we're you're not going to get the new people the the people that are younger, the people that you are going to be the next generation of leaders in your company to commute the same way you know blindly the same way as everyone else did five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. So you start to think strategically we're yes we're going to continue to have because. To John's point earlier, if your location is in a, in a place that is disruptive to people but it's already there, it's easy to just continue to leave it in you know the generally same location. But how do you get the, the people that you're trying to hire, retain, and attract the next wave or the next group or the next person? You need to, you need to get closer to where they are. So I've got a client that's an hour outside of Boston in traffic, 30 minutes uh, without we're opening a satellite office right now in the hottest market in Boston, right? So they're saying, you know what? We want we want to attract young people. We want to attract a different type of employee. We want to bring people from other cities and have them a place to, to touch down and be a part of our ecosystem. They're not going to get in the car or cab or an Uber and go an hour in traffic out to our headquarters. We're going to put a spot downtown that's what I'm talking about. So they've got a major presence outside, small satellite in the neighborhood that everyone's in.
2: So I'll I'll kind of bring it full circle. The original premise of my post is this idea that, you know, the why we're going to the office is central to the conversation. I believe there's a change that has occurred uh, where it's no longer going to be okay that we're going to commute these long hours just so I can be on my computer there versus here. Like that's not why we drag our teams into the office we we want our teams in the office for a different reason it has to do with interaction it has to do with um team chemistry it has to do with culture okay so i believe this is the 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 best workplace strategy conversations are around this today you know what is your why why are you bringing your people in and who do you want them interacting with i don't think you want everyone interacting with everyone it's not practically possible and so you're going to find there's patterns where yeah it'd be great if these teams could be together it'd be these teams don't really need to interact with those teams um the insurance folks and the finance folks or the operations team or the bd team i mean what are the patterns of overlap that you're going for and maybe is there a way to make this work in a hub and spoke methodology as opposed to a single location in a massive tower in a downtown urban market that's the workplace strategy conversation
1: why here's the where i'm coming from with this I think there is a major problem with every company getting people back. Even the ones that are telling people they have to be in the office is having an issue getting people back in the office. This is a major issue with our workforce. To me, I'm not sure if we're ever going to get there. Unless we have a major um, change in our labor markets, which last Friday they came out on fire again. Um, I just don't see it. Globally, the markets have gone back to the office. In the United States, we haven't. We have and I can't tell you even the industry because the information is, is so guarded, but we have executives standing out in front of their investors, in front of the world, telling everyone, and these are massive organizations, that they're a five day a week, five days a week company, and four days of them are 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 anchor days. We have to be there. And their average occupancy is one point two days a week based on data. I just found that out last week. A major, major company, one that th- everyone knows about. And apparently, the person I got the data from, it is industry-wide. It is company-wide. So landlords, I think, are in a real real challenge right now. I think companies are really struggling with this and figuring out what the right mix is. Because even if they're t- asking the people to come back three days a week, they're not doing it. And, and the more data we collect around this, the more companies are going to start to realize that
0: what their expectations are what reality is or are not are, are not aligned right now okay lively discussion for episode 28 thanks so much for listening we'll be back uh in another couple of weeks with the next episode uh and until then uh who do we have on the super bowl i got taylor swift's team uh, i'll be wearing my uh my taylor swift merch t-shirt hat sweatshirt all the stuff uh brian what about you so I look at this a little differently.
1: I'm uh, selfishly not uh, not rooting for Taylor Swift's team because as a Tom Brady fan and a fan of the New England Patriots being the only, the dynasty for the last 20 years, I don't want the Chiefs to win. So let's go San Fran. I got to go for uh, the Chiefs
3: only because I'm a diehard Seah- Seahawks fan and the Niners are our uh, arch rival. So as much as it pains me, to root for a team that just seems to be becoming the new york yankees of the nfl i gotta go for the chiefs
2: i'm gonna be rooting for the niners but if you want me to put money on it it's gonna go on the chiefs okay
0: brian john i'm gonna send you some of my favorite taylor swift songs after this see if i can change your mind
1: she is launching a new album so i'm very excited as well i'm i'm a big (laughs) (laughs) swifty
0: Sam, yeah no no like in all seriousness no joke taylor swift's the goat Taylor Swift Agreed. is revered and loved by the besties. I've been to more
1: Taylor Swift concerts than you, Tucker. I went to Taylor Swift when she was the opening act for Rascal Flatts like 25 years ago.
0: I went to Taylor Swift when she was the opening act for the opening act, uh, Kenny Chesney. No one knew who she was. I'm, I'm OG. I'm day one. Day one Taylor Swiftie over here. I
1: think you got me there. <laughs> I <don't, you> got, <laughs> I think you're the only person okay. I know has got me there. Okay.
0: We're wrapping up there. Thanks everyone.